0: Hello everyone and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's session is, int- is entitled Understanding Neuromyelitis Optica, NMO 101. My name is Roberta Pesci and I am the research and project manager at the Transverse Myelitis Association. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. Sam Hughes from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, NMO Center, will be moderating our podcast today. Um, A few housekeeping pieces before we start. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website at myelitis.org, and it can also be downloaded via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis. Great. Thanks, Roberta. Uh, The 2015 TMA Ask the Expert podcast series is made possible through the generous support of Chagai Pharmaceutical Company. Chagai Pharmaceuticals is conducting clinical studies to create original and innovative drugs, both in the United States and overseas, to address unmet medical needs and neurological disorders where the level of pharmaceutical contribution and satisfaction concerning patient treatment remains low. We are excited to be joined by Drs. Brian Weinschenker and Sean Pittick as experts on today's podcast. Dr. Weinschenker is a professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He has developed diagnostic criteria and characterized the natural history of neuromyelitis optica. Along with Dr. Vanda Lennon, he is evaluating the clinical significance of the antibody bio- biomarker NMO- IgG, which is highly specific and moderately sensitive for NMO, along with other restricted types of inflammatory demyelination, including longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis and recurrent optic neuritis. Dr. Piddock is a professor of neurology and director of the Neuroimmunology Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic. He has played a central role in the Mayo Clinic studies of the first serological marker for a demyelinating disorder of the human central nervous system, the NMO IgG. Furthermore, Dr. Piddick's clinical, imaging, and serological studies are providing the foundation for future investigation of the basic immunological mechanisms that cause NMO. He is also the principal investigator of an open-label trial of eculizumab in NMO. So to get us started today, um, I wanted to have us approach the subject up front with neuromyelitis optica. It has been called a number of things over the years, and the criteria for diagnosis has changed it's been called Devic's disease, uh, NMO, now we're talking about spectrum disorders, uh, including longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis and recurrent TMs, and and I was just hoping that, starting out with uh, uh, Dr. Weinschenker, if you could kind of give us an overview of where the NMO landscape is at this point and and where we're at in terms of the actual definition of NMO spectrum disorder.
1: Well, thank you, Sam. Um,
0: Yes, as you say, uh, the
1: concept of neuromyelitis optica has been around for quite a long time, uh, but it really wasn't clearly differentiated from multiple sclerosis. In fact, uh, conventional thinking was that patients with neuromyelitis optica had a single event of myelitis and uh, almost simultaneously bilateral optic neuritis, and unless they had those exactly in that way, they didn't have this condition. Uh, But in the 1990s, uh, people thinking more broadly and recognizing that MS was not necessarily a single condition and that every uh, condition where there were relapses didn't necessarily mean that the patient had multiple sclerosis put together criteria. Uh, we actually did that for the first time in 1999, that we able to uh, define a group of patients that seem to have a different disorder than um, multiple sclerosis. But I think things really changed with the discovery of the antibody biomarker that you mentioned, which are antibodies to aquaporin-4 antibodies, uh, to uh, aquaporin-4 proteins, which is a water channel in the brain. And patients who had this condition were could be clearly differentiated from uh, patients with multiple sclerosis. They had a different clinical course, different prognosis, and in fact the treatments that we used to prevent attacks were different. And with that blood test, we've been able to now recognize that some patients who had symptoms that we never previously recognized were associated with neuromyelitis optica, especially uh, intractable vomiting and hiccup, which can occur in 20% of patients with neuromyelitis optica at the beginning, could be part of this syndrome. So we now are recognizing a much broader spectrum of conditions, but it's still one that's uh, most characterized by recurrent optic neuritis
0: and myelitis in most patients. Thank you for that. I think that was a pretty pretty good overview uh, of where we're at right now. Dr. Piddick, do you have anything uh, to add, maybe specifically about the the NMO antibody?
2: Um, no, I, I I agree with what what Brian has said. Um, I think the in respect to the NMO antibody, I think the main thing is that the assays that are used to detect the antibody have improved over the years uh, since uh, you know uh, since 2004. Um and so now our our assays are <clears throat> at least in patients that would have fulfilled say nineteen ninety nine criteria or two thousand six criteria of uh the Wingerchuk criteria if you exclude the antibody. Uh you're talking about, you know, sensitivities now of about somewhere between seventy and eighty percent uh with very good specificities. Um so so I think we're 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 certainly improving the assays um uh for, for the dete- for for detection and diagnosis.
0: Yeah. Uh, there were a number of um, uh, questions that came from the community, specifically about the antibody. And I think it's a uh, great opportunity since, since you, Dr. Pittek, are here on the call to maybe answer a few questions. Uh, there is one in particular um, uh, to your point about the assay getting more uh, sensitive and more specific. Uh, uh, the question is, I heard that the NMO antibody test has significantly improved in its accuracy over the years. If a test five or more years ago was negative, but, there, but other symptoms show that NMO is a possibility, should I be tested again?
2: So that's a very reasonable question, and, um, and the answer is yes. Um, Remember that the original assay that was used uh, for detection of antibodies was what we call an indirect immunofluorescence assay. That's basically where you look at the binding of the patient's antibody to mouse uh, brain tissue and that assay is about 50% sensitive. That means that if you have the disease, you're going to be negative for the antibody in 50% of the time. So, uh, so uh, through the years, there's been the development of different assays. For example, um, after that, we then introduced an immunoprecipitation assay, and that assay had problems with specificity. Um, more recently, there's been an ELISA assay, which has increased the sensitivity from about 50% to about 60 to 65%. Um, But there's been some concern uh, regarding specificity of that assay, in other words, that sometimes patients that don't have the disease might be positive. Um, And that led into uh, a number of studies um, that have led to the development of what we call now cell-based assays. These are assays where you take a cell, uh, that does not uh, express the water channel, and you actually um, transfect in the uh, gene for the water channel. So you, in other words, you now make that cell express the water channel, and then you look to see if the patient has, if the patient has antibodies that bind to that target compared with the cells without, ha- uh, without the transfection. And those those cell-based assays um, have now resulted in sensitivities, in other words, the ability to detect the antibody in the disease of about 70 to 75%. And now with even further advancements using computers technology to actually detect the differences, we're now at about 80%. So you can imagine that if now we uh, have a situation where 20% of people with NMO are negative for the antibody, Uh, compared with, uh, you know, 10 years ago where 50% of people would have been negative for the antibody, and that's purely based upon the ability or the detection method, Um, it is very reasonable for a patient that was negative on one assay that has symptoms and signs that are uh, suggestive or typical of the disease to be retested with the uh, more sensitive assays.
0: So that's that's made a huge difference in the diagnosis of NMO and NMO spectrum disorders uh, uh, recently. Dr. Weinshenker, uh, there's a question. Is it routine for all patients with an inflammatory attack in the brain or spinal cord to be tested for NMO antibodies?
1: Well, that's, that's a good question, but a difficult one to answer. Um, and... We we certainly don't want to miss a diagnosis of neuromyelitis optica, and as Dr. Piddock has told us, our tests are pretty good with very high specificity. But it partly depends on the context in which the testing is done. So that is, if you have a patient who has recurrent myelitis, where there's a pretty good chance they may have neuromyelitis optica, detecting the aquaporin-4 antibodies by the cell-based assay that Dr. Piddock referred to, I think would be very helpful. And uh, in that context, it's very likely that the patient has neuromyelitis optica. But if their clinical features, even though we think it's an inflammatory syndrome in the central nervous system, are not typical, and we're testing this blood test in a less likely to be positive situation, Getting a positive result, I think, should be viewed with a lot of caution. Dr. Piddock actually collaborated with a group at Kaiser Permanente and looked at a couple of different tests. And at least for one of the tests that he referred to, the ELISA test, which uh, when they tested a group of patients that were diagnosed with MS, and it did include a couple of patients who probably had neuromyelitis optica, they decided on clinical grounds. But when they just ran that test on everybody, twice as commonly as it was true positive, it was false positive. So uh, I think uh, the most important thing is that doctors educate themselves as to the new spectrum of neuromyelitis optica, recognize brain conditions that might be really suggestive of neuromyelitis optica, and in situations where there's even a reasonable chance that neuromyelitis optica is the correct diagnosis that this test be done. However, I think it's uh, perhaps not as reasonable to say that every single person who is suspected of having MS should have this test because ultimately, I think you've got to put together the clinical features and the blood test results to make this diagnosis and not make it strictly based on the blood test.
0: It sounds like it can, it's more of an art than a science, like most of, of diagnostics is. Um, well, hopefully more of a science, but uh, <laughs> there is a bit of art in there, yes. Yeah. Um, so, there's another question, uh, Dr. Piddick, maybe you can help us out with this one. Is it possible to have a positive NMO antibody test, but never experience subsequent attacks after the initial event, assuming that there's no long-term immunosuppressant being taken?
2: Um Well, in, in science and medicine, there's always possibility. Uh, but the likelihood is that that would not occur, at least in my my experience. And I think, really, Brian has actually done uh, some of the original work. Where what Brian showed was that if you if you had a single episode of a long lesion in your spinal cord. And you tested patients, and if you divided the patients into those that had the aquaporin-4 antibody and those that did not, the patients that had the aquaporin-4 antibody were at a high risk of developing another clinical event, whether it be another transverse myelitis or the development of an optic neuritis and thus NMO uh, in, the, in the year following. Whereas the patients that were negative uh, had a low, much lower likelihood of developing another another event so so generally we know that the aquaporin four antibody in the setting of a say a single event is predictive of another uh, attack in other words it 's predictive of a, of a relapsing course. Now, if you look at patients generally, what we know is that if, uh, at least in some of the studies that we've done here, is that about one in 10 patients uh, will uh, have about uh, 10 years uh, between their first attack and their second attack. So you could argue that for that individual patient, you could potentially hold off on using immunosuppressant medications. But remember, nine of the 10 patients will have an attack, and most of the patients will have an attack within, the, within one to two years. And the problem is we don't know, we cannot predict which patient is going to have a short interval between their first and their second attack, and which patient is going to have a long interval. And so therefore, uh, it's my uh, approach, and I think the approach of um, most physicians that treat NMO that if you have an attack that's uh, clinically uh, NMO or NMO, uh, typical of NMO and you're acuporn for antibody positive that you should go on immunosuppressant medication with the objective of stopping that second attack or stopping further attacks and therefore preventing disability.
0: Mm. Yes, that was uh, in your answer there you answer another one of the questions about uh, um, what's the average time frame between attacks. And I think it just goes to show that every patient is different, and it's it's hard to 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 tell at this point um, um, in our in our understanding of the disease process. Um,
2: yeah. So what we're we're doing a study at the moment, a collaboration with Anna, um, Jackie Palace um, at uh, Oxford and and uh, Anna Jacob at Liverpool, where what we've done is we're doing a mathematical modeling study looking at attacks, so what we've done is we have 500 patients with NMO and we have documented the date of every single attack that they've ever had. And we're trying to get at at exactly that question. In other words, um, uh, what is the timeline between your first and second attack, your second and third attack? Do attacks occur in clusters? Um, do, if you have a lot of attacks initially, are you more likely to have frequent attacks? Um, uh, so all of those questions are somewhat unanswered. <clears throat> we, we know from smaller studies, um, you know, these are generally center specific studies of reasonably small numbers of patients that, that attacks can uh, t- tend to occur, you know, within one to two years, but, but we, need, uh, we need more research and, and more work in that area.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there was another question that came up. I think, Dr. Weinshenker, you might be able to help out with this one. Uh, I was diagnosed with NMO, uh, but my optic nerve was not affected, has not been affected yet. Having this diagnosis, does it mean that without long-term treatment, my optic nerve revision will eventually be affected? Well, it it,
1: uh, certainly doesn't mean that this will happen, but any patient who is diagnosed with NMO and has this antibody is at risk of optic neuritis. Uh, Some of the recent studies uh, that have been reported on the clinical course of neuromyelitis optica suggest that people... Uh, who are older, who has have this disease, that is, say, 50 or older, are more likely to have myelitis, whereas younger patients tend to more commonly have optic neuritis. We'll certainly see uh, occasional patients with this condition will have seven or eight episodes of myelitis. They've never had an episode of optic neuritis. But I would say that uh, virtually every patient who has this condition is at risk of either myelitis or optic neuritis. And after a period of time, uh, there's a fairly high percentage of patients who may also get brain stem or
0: other brain
1: uh, lesions as well. Mm.
0: Uh, speaking of the brain lesions, there was a specific question about that. Um, so uh, the effects of spinal and optic nerve attacks are more obvious than brain involvement but what damage is suffered from acute brain lesions and inflammation due to NMO, and what permanent damage can be seen? Maybe, Dr. Weinsenker, you can uh, uh, elaborate on that.
1: Yes, it is variable. We will see some patients where they have a brain MRI scan and will pick up a brain lesion. Um, Some of them even very characteristic for NMO. For example, If you have a brain lesion in the hypothalamus and nowhere else, that we've learned that that's pretty characteristic of NMO. And some patients will be will have no symptoms that we can tell that they either have or have ever had that could be attributed to that um, lesion. But some of the symptoms that may occur uh, could include things like uh, sleepiness and narcolepsy, uh, which can occur. Um, Patients will experience problems with eating, for example, severe loss of appetite, possibly even uh, pathologic eating disorder where there's overeating. So those are symptoms of hypothalamus dysfunction. Um, but uh, some, some of the brain lesions that we see, for example, the most common one we see is one that uh, causes vomiting and hiccups. Practically always this is self-limited. It may go on for weeks or even months, um, in some patients but practically always this does recover and there is some evidence that there is less severe uh, nerve damage or permanent nerve damage than are seen in the optic nerve and spinal cord why that is isn't entirely clear but uh, work that um, we've done here suggests that the uh, level of expression of the aquaporin-4 protein and the presence of what we call aggregates of aquaporin-4 is, is greater in the optic nerve and spinal cord, which may make those tissues more prone to uh, severe damage than other parts of the brain. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the only explanation why the optic nerve and spinal cord are more frequently and more severely targeted, but I think it may be part of the explanation.
0: That's interesting. Uh, we don't... Uh, I think historically, when we think of an MO, we don't really think of the brain involvement, and uh, it's important to, to note not only for, for patients but I think for for healthcare providers that that is a, a possibility within the disease process. Um, speaking of the disease process, there was a question about progress progression within the disease. Um, uh, what what extent do we see uh, uh, disease progression and disability due to disease progression? Um, and how does it affect lifespan? How does a diagnosis of NMO or NMO spectrum disorder affect lifespan and disability progression? Dr. Piddock, do you think you could speak to that?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think first of all, we have to remember that um, Prior to the discovery of the water channel uh, antibody and prior to the recognition that uh, this water channel antibody was associated with an evolving spectrum of disease um, that, uh, that, that 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 expanded beyond what typically was considered NMO, which is basically uh, involvement of both the optic nerve and the spinal cord, um, we therefore are seeing um, to some extent, less severe disease um, at the current time. And also remember that the uh, discovery of the antibody is allowing a diagnosis to be made um, um, much earlier than, than in the past so therefore immunotherapies are being started um much sooner so we have to be very careful how we interpret natural history data uh from from you know pre the pre water channel antibody days to the current the current time um brian and, and dean wingerchuk did did kind of the seminal work on uh the the kind of the, not only the diagnostic criteria but also uh, the the natural history of of nmo um, in the pre-water channel antibody days. And at that time, uh, you know, NMO <coughs> was really... Um or at least the, the, the core features were that you had to have uh, had an optic neuritis and a transverse myelitis, and oftentimes those patients hadn't been treated early, and so so disability was quite severe, and and, and approximately 50% of patients were um, uh, wheelchair bound within within five years. A significant proportion of patients were uh, had had developed respiratory failure in the setting of high cervical cord lesions, and 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 uh, a, a high percentage of patients were. Had had you know uh, significant visual morbidity. Um, currently, however, things are, are are looking much much better. Uh, if you look at work that's been done in France and also work from our group, um, uh, the outcomes now are much improved. Um, so that uh, if patients are are diagnosed early and start on immunosuppression therapies. Um, uh, the likelihood of needing a wheelchair after, you know, ten years is uh, probably less than ten percent. So, so I think um, so. The natural history, um, obviously, it has been changed in the sense because patients are being treated earlier. So, so this really emphasises the importance of attack prevention in this disease. Um, if you stop attacks, it would appear that you generally will stop the uh, de- development of disability. Um, uh, so uh, again, as, as, as Brian had pointed out before, if you, a patient comes in with a symptom that potentially could fit within an NMO spectrum, it's important to test the antibody, and if it's positive, it's important to initiate immunosuppression early. In regards to the issue of whether there's progression of disease, Dean Wingerchuk uh, has done work on this and found that the progressive phase of illness, uh, in other words, uh, kind of similar to what we see in, my, in um, uh, secondary progressive MS, tends not to occur in NMO. However, I think we need to be careful making definitive assumptions. And I do think that there may be some patients that do have some progression. In other words, worsening disability in between acute attacks. And of course, we still need to know whether or not uh, that is related to uh, subclinical um, uh, or low grade activity of inflammation, um, uh, or is it, um, or, or is there indeed some type of a neurodegenerative process occurring? I think generally it is not the case, but 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 it's it's, it's not possible to make a definitive statement. And I've certainly seen some patients where uh, it, where there seems to be some progression. Um, over a period of time in between attacks, but it's certainly not in, in most most cases. So much more work needs to be done uh, on that. But it's important to remember that in MS, most disability really accrues as part of the secondary progressive phase of the illness, not as part of the uh, acute attacks, uh, whereas in NMO, it's, it's the opposite.
0: Thank you, that, that does clear some things up in terms of the, the differences there. Um, There was a question that I'll direct to to Dr. Weinschenker um, about pediatric NMO and the um, um, prevalence of NMO in kids versus adults. And uh, is there an estimated age when more diagnoses of NMO occur or is it spread throughout the lifespan? And are there any suspected outside triggers or environmental influences on NMO?
1: Well, it, it seems like the occurrence of NMO is what we call bimodal. In other words, there's two groups. Um, the, the biggest group are uh, women who are late middle age. Uh, but there is a second group of patients, um, perhaps less commonly um, in the aquaporin-4-antibody-positive group, but uh, certainly quite a number that, who are aquaporin-4-positive who are children. And uh, I think it can occur in any age in children. Um, we've seen patients at Mayo Clinic that are, that are as young as two um, with neuromyelitis optica, so uh, it can occur at any age. Um in terms of whether there's environmental factors that trigger this disease, a number have been reported, including in different parts of the world, diseases like tuberculosis. But you know, um, I would say the only risk factor that uh, I'd feel comfortable at identifying is having other autoimmune conditions. We know patients who have conditions like lupus and Sjogren's seem to be at greater risk. Um, it, 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 there seems to be a tendency for these kind of autoimmune diseases to cluster. I would say any other environmental risk factor is arguable. Um, infections seem to trigger attacks of the disease, but I, I uh, you know, common infections like colds and flus, but I think that's a different thing than actually leading to the disease. They they more trigger attacks. But many people have attacks with no apparent trigger at all.
0: Hmm. Uh, you spoke about um, the uh, like paired autoimmune diseases. Uh, is there, do you see many d- diagnoses of NMO after, uh, uh, um, the, in the setting of a diagnosis of lupus or Sjogren's, or do you normally see uh, those other rheumatologic diseases diagnosed after a diagnosis of NMO?
1: Well... More commonly, we see it before, but, uh, of course, there's a certain bias is that, you know, if you followed, there's usually more time before the diagnosis than after the diagnosis that you followed patients. Uh, I've seen it both ways, that patients first have neuromyelitis optica, and then they develop other symptoms of other autoimmune conditions like lupus. But more commonly, they have a history of, say, 10 years ago having lupus or myasthenia gravis. Often that condition is in remission, not even a clinical issue. And then they develop symptoms of neuromyelitis optica.
0: That would be the more common situation. Interesting. Um, there's another question that, that kind of pertains to disease pathology that I think is uh, uh, we could speak a lot too in, in the in the setting of, of um, the research right now, but could another disease pathology or antibody be involved in NMO spectrum cases if a patient is negative for NMO IgG? Dr. Pitta, could you speak to that?
2: Well, I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, uh, we we know that NMO and myasthenia gravis are are have qu- have quite significant similarities. Um, uh, both are antibody mediated diseases. Um, Both have an association with uh, thymic tumors Um, um, uh, both can coexist. We know that in patients with NMO, for example, um, about 13% will have acetylcholine receptor binding antibodies and 2% of NMO patients will have myasthenia gravis, and as Brian says, that usually occurs uh, first. Uh, And we know that in myasthenia gravis that there's a percent of patients that have myasthenia that can have a clinical phenotype that's quite similar but have antibodies that target um, the musk uh, receptor um, and uh, and now there's uh, increasing evidence that uh, even patients that are musk antibody and acetylcholine receptor binding antibody negative that those patients can have antibodies uh, targeting an array of um, uh, proteins that are involved in uh, in, um, uh, the, uh, in the in the in the synapse at the neuromuscular junction um, I think, uh, in terms of nmo, uh, an antibody that has uh, come uh, to the fore recently is the uh, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody. This had received a lot of attention in the past in the old MS literature, um, uh, but unfortunately, at that time, what they were using was elises that were quite non-specific, and uh, a lot of people kind of dropped the ball on MOG because. The ELISA assay that was being used was identifying the antibodies to this target, which is a very sticky target in patients that had no MS or, in fact, had, had, um, had uh, were normal. Uh, but more recently, uh, if you just look at antibodies that are targeting uh, the extracellular um, epitopes, in other words, the parts of the MOG that are on the outside of the cell that are available to binding by the antibody, it would appears that this antibody is a biomarker for patients that have symptoms and signs that can look similar to NMO. There are some subtle differences, um, uh, but again, it's very early days. Uh, but I suspect that um, that this antibody will be helpful in patients that have a phenotype that looks like NMO, um, but actually will, will will have a different uh, the, the the target of the immune system will be different. And um, and I think as we move forward, we will also begin to find novel uh, antibody targets in uh, patients that have recurrent optic neuritis. If you take patients that have recurrent optic neuritis, for example, about uh, eighty. Percent of those patients do not do not have a, a a biomarker, do not have an antibody that's targeting a specific target, but they are immunotherapy responsive disease, and so those presumably will have uh, a, a, an antibody that has yet to be discovered. So I think the field is exciting. I mean, obviously we're in the we're in the era of um, of discovery of uh, pathogenic biomarkers um, or antibodies, and um, so I think uh, I think you know uh, we we'll, we will see. Uh, antibodies uh, coming out in the next, you know, uh, decade that will help us diagnostically and, uh, and potentially allow us to um, uh, individualize how we approach uh, treatment of patients um, uh, in the future.
0: Yes, thank you, Dr. Piddock. Dr. Weinsenker, do you have anything to, to add to that?
1: No, I think that was an excellent uh, summary.
0: Yes, is. uh very, it's very eye-opening, the new things that are, that are coming up in terms of uh, the immune system and, and antibody activity in, in these kinds of diseases. Um, switching gears a little bit for the, the second part of the podcast, there were a few questions that came up about specific therapies that are used uh, within Enomo to, to treat attacks and to prevent attacks. And Dr. Weinschenker, could you give us a little bit of an overview up front about uh, immunosuppression, why that's used in in NMO, and what kind of drugs are actively being used, and what kind of drugs are in the pipeline uh, to be used in NMO and NMO spectrum disorders?
1: Okay, Um, there are two types of treatment. One is to treat an acute attack when an acute attack comes on, Uh, There, the goal is, of course, to salvage function, because usually patients are coming in with paralysis or blindness, and the goal is to help them recover as quickly as possible. Now, even without treatment, uh, attacks tend to improve or recover, but it's very common in NMO that that recovery is... uh, not not ideal and in some cases may be minimal so uh, it's important to treat with anti-inflammatory treatments the standard would be intravenous uh, corticosteroids typical drug that would be used would be methylprednisolone alone given intravenously over the course of five days very commonly effective um, but there would probably be somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of patients who would either have an inadequate or minimal response, and in that group of patients, my own feeling is that the best established treatment uh, is plasma exchange, which needs to be performed in specialized centers, but is a relatively safe uh, procedure. Um, it quite often will need a central line to be inserted. Um, but uh, the procedures itself are fairly safe. And uh, there, there do seem to be other alternatives. There is some evidence that IVIG uh, may also work in this situation, but much less evidence. Uh, the most important thing in the long term for patients with neuromyelitis optica is attack prevention. And we use a variety of uh, medications that suppress the immune system. Historically, the first drug that... The first drugs that were reported were prednisone um, and a medication called azathioprine, um, sometimes sold under the name Imuran. Um, And uh, taken together, these medications are very effective. Usually it takes about six months for azathioprine to take effect, so patients would be kept on prednisone, which works very quickly for six months, and then the azathioprine tapered. Uh, there are op- other options. Uh, there's a medication called mycophenolate mofetil, uh, often sold as Celsept or Myfortic, um, which is also quite effective, more or less equally effective as azathioprine. Um, and uh, about a decade or perhaps a little um, longer ago, Um, Dr. Bruce Cree in San Francisco piloted the use of a medication called rituximab, which is a selective antibody that depletes B-cells, which are the antibody-producing cells. And uh, this has proven to be quite an effective treatment, even in some patients who don't respond to azathioprine. Uh, We still don't know whether it's overall superior, because typically it's tried in patients who fail other treatments, but it it can be uh, remarkably effective even in patients who are not doing very well. And it works fairly quickly. Within one month, there's complete depletion of B cells. It needs redosing roughly every six months. So those would be the mainstays of treatment. We have other more potent uh, drugs, and then there are some drugs which are, I would call, experimental, and are currently in clinical trials. Um, And I don't know whether you want me to discuss them, Sam, but I would say uh, they're not ones that uh, should be standardly used at this time, but uh, are, are quite promising.
0: Yeah, I think uh, um, there are a few clinical trials, drug trials that are out now that are actively recruiting um, um, that I think a number of our NMO community have probably heard or read about. and I think uh, uh, we'll probably be asked to participate maybe at some point, point. and I think um, uh, any, any insights that, that you or Dr. Piddock might have and uh, uh, things to consider um, when, when being approached about a drug trial of any sort, uh, regardless of what the drug really is, um, um, is probably helpful to the community. Okay. Well, I'll start. uh, um,
1: You know, I think uh, patients should first consider their own benefits. I think that's always uh, an important thing. But then there's, of course, the issue of we want to move ahead and get better, more specific, more effective drugs. And practically always when patients volunteer for clinical studies, um, part of the reason that they do so is, is the general wish to try to move knowledge forward in neuromyelitis optica, and without patient volunteers, this is never possible. So, the specifics that patients would want to know is, uh, would uh, often these studies are randomized, that is, patients uh, are, are not given uh, a choice as to which medication they take, and they would either get the uh, experimental medication, uh, or they would be randomized to receive a control, and the control may be nothing, may be placebo um, a medication that's, or, or a, uh, either intravenous or as a pill that uh, they don't know whether it's the active or uh, uh, just a uh, inactive treatment, but maybe really nothing other than sugar or some some substitute. So, uh, you know, that's a potential risk. Some studies uh, randomize patients to get either the active treatments or the... Um, experimental treatment or another active treatment. And in some studies, all patients may be allowed to have some type of standard treatment and on top of that are randomized to receive one or the other. And As you can imagine, there may be different levels of risk. Probably the greatest risk would be if you have a potential of uh, not being randomized to active treatment. In some studies, Three-quarters of the patients would be given the active drug and a quarter not. Other studies, it might be 50-50. So those, those would be considerations. Obviously, you'd want to take into account the known side effects of the drug because all drugs have potential side effects. And, um, you know, there, there's risk of being randomized to the active drug as well. And uh, patients probably want to consider what is the background information that suggests that that drug might be effective, uh, both the rationale and whether there's been previous experience uh, with that medication. So I think those would be the key things that patients would want to consider um, when, approaching, uh, when being approached about participating in a clinical trial.
0: Yes, I think those are all very wise, very wise recommendations. Dr. Pittick, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely with uh, with what Brian has said. Um, you know, I think I think first of all that the, the three the three drugs that are going to randomised you know a phase three trial. Um, I think they make a lot of sense. Um, they all have uh, somewhat different mechanisms of action. Um, there's um, reasonably good preliminary data in at least for two of the drugs. And uh, certainly for the for the um, Medi551 drug, which is an anti-CD19 uh, uh, drug, there is certainly, you can certainly draw conclusions from rituximab that this drug is going to be um, efficacious. So I think there's a lot of good reason behind the three drug trials. Um, I do think that uh, pa- uh, certainly, from my perspective, if, if you had a patient that really is failing or ha- to having attacks despite standard of care, um, then that uh, patient is probably someone who at least will be looking for alternatives. Um, and the other thing I think to look at in addition to kind of discussing the specifics of each drug trial with your with your physician with the physician uh, who's enrolling potentially enrolling patients is, is to look at what what uh, what happens after you know you come out of the drug trial or if you did have an attack, and many of these drug trials now are offering patients um, in an open label fashion the opportunity of getting the drug for 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 some years and so that that also might be potentially attractive to some patients. Um, uh, but, um, but hopefully, you know, it, 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 it's also important to note that this is a good time for an orphan-like disease where we have, you know, essentially three randomized controlled trials now in a disease that was, you know, to a large extent um, ignored and, and, and certainly the, the concept of having randomized controlled trials in such a disease was, was, was not even on the horizon, um, you know, um, uh, some years ago. So I think it's exciting times and I think patients at least have a lot of, um, a lot lot of things to consider, and they have options, and, and they just have to uh, make the best decision uh, for themselves, as, as Brian has pointed out.
0: Mm-hmm. Communication is very important uh, between between the research team and the treating team and the uh, patient who, who really is the, the focus of the research. So um, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what both of you say. Um, uh, I agree with that based on my my experience in, in, in clinical research working with patients. So I appreciate that. Um, there is one uh, specific question that was asked about therapies that I think would be a good thing to touch on for a little bit. Um, uh, you all, Dr. Weinshaker, you spoke about the different uh, types of immunosuppressants that are being used now uh, uh, to ward off attacks in NMO. There's one patient who uh, uh, asks about being steroid dependent. Um, uh, When they try to wean off prednisone that's paired with Cellcept, they have a relapse. And it has happened many times with them. And they've been on prednisone for six years in addition to their Cellcept. I I have anecdotally uh, heard from a number of our of patients that this is uh an issue with them being steroid dependent along with uh a, a long-term immunosuppressant. Is um this something that's concerning to you as a as a physician and how would you deal with this? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I've heard this many times too from patients. I think it's a common phenomena in neuromyelitis optica. Um Prednisone long term, uh, especially in high dose, can have significant toxicity. Uh, Weight gain, uh, cataracts, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, many uh, osteoporosis, many undesirable side effects. So our goal is really to try to keep the dose as low as possible. in some patients, we seem to successfully be able to get them off steroids altogether With when they're on a medication like azathioprine or mycophenolate mofetil. Uh, but some patients, uh, they need some dose of prednisone, typically a small dose, even 10 to 20 milligrams daily or every other day, may be uh, absolutely essential to keep them free of attacks. And I would say, in general, if we can keep the dose under 20 milligrams a day, uh, as well as take measures like monitoring bone density and treating for osteoporosis and for prevention of osteoporosis, the uh, potential side effects may be acceptable. Uh, especially considering the disease that we're dealing with, the neuromyelitis optica and the importance of uh, keeping patients uh, free from attacks. I suppose uh, if there were a situation where we couldn't get the dose under 20 milligrams a day or um, patients were continuing to have relapses, even non-steroids, then that's a situation where you might want to consider rituximab or another treatment. Typically, patients on rituximab don't need any other immunotherapy. They don't need steroids. At least that's usually been my experience, and we can treat them with rituximab alone. So if they haven't had rituximab, I think that's uh, a good option in that situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, uh, that was very informative about, uh, I think, an issue that a number of patients have, like you said, um, we're in the the last few minutes of the podcast here, and I wanted to give uh, both of you, Dr. Weinschenker and Dr. Pittick, a chance to kind of wrap up your thoughts on where um, where we are now with uh, uh, with inamo spectrum disorder, and um, like we've been talking about the the pathology, our understanding of the pathology, and 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 novel therapies that are coming out and and kind of what you see for the future and and where you as researchers and clinicians are 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 trying are working to get us to with your with your colleagues, um, uh, Dr. Piddick, would you like to start with your your final thoughts?
2: Well you know i I think um, I think it's a very exciting time for for this disease. I think, I think the, advance, uh, the advances have been significant in the last 10 years. I think they all stem from the original work that Brian and Vanda did uh, and, and the discovery of, the, of this antibody. It's really the first um, uh, uh, biomarker that's sensitive and specific for any form of inflammatory demyelination disease. Um, I think we certainly uh, dramatically improved our understanding of what's happening uh, uh, from an immunopathologic perspective. And those advances, I think, have led to um, the, the current status of drug trials, where we have three uh, very exciting uh, medications uh, that are going to enter into trial, and hopefully we will get uh, very important information um, in terms of um, whether they work and and uh, whether they're uh, and hopefully in the future whether they're better than what we're currently using. Um, I think there's still um, I think there's uh, significant implications for patients, Our earlier diagnosis initiation of treatment earlier will uh, reduce disability and um, I think will significantly improve the long-term outcome for these patients. Um, We still have a lot to learn. Um, I think it's very important that we not drop the ball and assume that we know all. Um, We still uh, really need to know a lot more as to what exactly happens uh, when the antibody binds to its target um, I think there's a lot that, that still needs to be learned, and uh, knowledge of those early events um, potentially will result in, in, in getting better drugs uh, that are cleaner and have, and have less side effects. Our ultimate goal is to stop attacks with drugs that don't have any uh, side effects, and, and, that's, and that's a big goal, um, uh, but I think it's doable, um, and I think we just have to enthuse the, uh, the not only industry but also patients uh, to continue to assist us in the, by becoming involved in drug studies or trials, but also um, uh, trying to get dollars to assist us in, in, in finding the answers. Mm.
0: Thank you, Dr. Piddick. And, and final thoughts from you, Dr. Weinshenker? Well,
2: I think uh, Sean
1: gave a very nice summary of the current state of things. You know, from a disease that we thought was one in a million or less, we're learning its about one in every 25,000 uh, people which uh, that's still an uncommon disease but not so rare uh, when put in the context of other neurologic diseases um, I think uh, on the good side uh, it being more common is that perhaps it's not quite as uniformly severe um, as we used to think and we're, we're recognizing this broader spectrum but uh, it is clear that we can now specifically identify patients with neuromyelitis optica, and we've learned that we must not use uh, standard MS treatments, uh, although not all have been tried. A number of them have either been ineffective or seem to actually make the disease worse. So uh, the treatments that we use standardly, although they're not new and not specific, um, are very good if they can be applied early in the disease, but we've heard uh, about a lot of new treatments that are coming out in clinical trials. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think any of these will be curative. It'll still be a matter of having to continue on treatments, Um, but you know, knowing the target of the disease now in aquaporin-4 antibodies, um, I think it is at least conceivable that strategies could be brought forward in the future that could lead to a more permanent cure or very highly specific uh, treatment. Um, Still, I think, visionary, and um, I don't think we can say for certainty if we're going to be there, but uh, it is promising, and I think the future does look uh, very promising for treatment to this condition.
0: Great. Thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Pittick and Dr. Weinschenker for sharing your time and, and expertise today with our community. Uh, very helpful, uh, very good questions asked by the community. Um, couldn't get to all of them today, uh, uh, but, but really appreciate all of the, the interest and effort from the community to be a part of this series. Um, and thanks to Chagai Pharmaceuticals for their support of the Ask the Expert podcast series. Um, I hope everybody has a great weekend, and everybody keep an eye out for next month's uh, Ask the Expert podcast announcement. Uh, Thanks, and again, everybody have a great weekend.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.